I'm Katie Bennett-Stenton, a senior B2B marketing professional with a real interest in digital transformation, change management and developing amazing content. I live in Melbourne, Australia with my husband and two mostly delightful children. Having worked in senior marketing roles in the UK, US and Australia, I've met many inspiring people and benefited enormously from the power of networking community. In this Katie Talks podcast series, I uncover the stories of influencers, sharing their thought-provoking business and leadership insights. And talk about an inspiring person today. My guest is Bronwyn Bates, CEO and founder of Metal Women, a social entrepreneur turning empathy into action. Bronwyn has a background in communications management, customer experience and business management across music, the arts, government and not-for-profit. Harnessing the power of a conscious consumer, Bronwyn founded Metal Women Inc, a social enterprise which creates sustainable employment paths for survivors of domestic and family violence. Bronwyn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so feel so privileged to be here. <laughs> oh, well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah. Before we kick off, it'd be great if you could just give 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 us a little bit of background yeah. on you, please. Yeah. So as you said, I've um, kind of jumped around sectors. I um, when I was 21, I started my career in um, working in the district court as a court reporter, mm -hmm. and I think at that time I was a bit young and not really sure to what to do with the helplessness that I was feeling. Um, I always saw victims kind of falling through the gaps and didn't think there was sufficient victim support. So I kind of held on to that helpless feeling and jumped around trying to figure out where, where a career um, felt like it was the right fit. And mm -hmm. regardless of the seniority of the roles, I never really quite found it until I was in the nonprofit space. So that was kind of how I, how I came about researching metal and this is where I am now. So oh, it feels well, like a good fit now. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like a great fit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I came across Metal on Twitter in early December last year mm. and uh, ended up ordering a few of your gorgeous hampers, which yeah. um, went over incredibly well with the recipients, a couple <laughs> of which have gone off, one to Sweden, one to the UK. So they're Fantastic. sort of fairly far flung. But Bronwyn, you're the CEO and founder of Metal Women. Tell, tell me about what you do. Yeah. So quite simply, uh, we are an ethical gift delivery service and we're staffed by women who are experiencing homelessness because of domestic and family violence. Um, we, we exist to help these women take the next steps after crisis. So we don't work with the women until they've been in the uh, crisis shelters for a minimum of 12 weeks. Okay. And we help them to re-enter the workforce in a really gentle and nurturing way, um, training them to, to redevelop their work skills. A lot of them have not been in the workforce for 16 years at a time because of various um, barriers that were put in front of them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, simply we're there to help them take the next steps and establish some financial security um, that will in turn help them access safe housing and maintain that safe housing. It's interesting to me that you say simply because uh, <laughs> that, that, that to me sounds anything but simply, why, why 12 weeks? Why? So the first 12 weeks when they enter the refuge, they're in peak crisis mode. Mm. There's a lot of, um, lot of really traumatic circumstances that they're going through that sure. um, honestly, I don't have the skills to be able to 
um, to support them through mm -hmm. and I would be doing them a disservice if I tried to support them through that time. So leave them with the professionals, leave sure. them with the trauma psychologists, um, with the women who are their caseworkers, who are the CEOs, the um, service providers at the refuge and leave them in their very capable hands until they deem that, okay, they're ready to take the next steps, they're ready to start assessing finances and um, re-entering the world after kind of unimaginable circumstances really. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Bronwyn, yeah. you talked a little bit about your time as a court reporter, yeah. but I'm interested to understand some more about your inspiration because, you know, I had goosebumps when I first read about your, um, you know, the wonderful organisation that you've created and I'm just, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm really fascinated to know more about you. what inspires you. Yeah, so I think after I did that jumping around in my career, um, I ended my, that, all of the, that journey, I guess, yeah. um, in the non-profit space and during that time, I met so many awe-inspiring uh, women and men who were working on the front line to provide these, those crisis services that I was speaking sure. about. So the shelters, mm -hmm. um, the ones that perform those emergency evacuations. And speaking to them, I kind of started to uncover that, not myself, I started reading reports that mm -hmm. were showing me that um, of the 120,000 women, men and children who uh, presented to crisis accommodation in 2017 and 18, 52% mm -hmm. of them were actually returned clients, meaning that when they leave, they don't have the financial um, independence to be able to stay safe, to okay. be able to establish or take those next steps after crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, and very often they'd end up resorting to going back to their abuser um, or back to the homeless shelter. So I thought, what on earth is being done about this? Sure. What, what's being done to make sure that once these amazing frontline service providers have offered that support and helped them um, lift through a time of crisis, yes. where do they refer them to after that to okay. make sure that they stay safe? Sure. And sadly, um, there was really little out there. So I started a year of research to just find out what I could do, what my part could be um, mm -hmm. with my comms experience to try and bring about some change in a, in a small way, but to try and, yeah, do something at the end of that really um, traumatic journey for these women. And um, that's how Metal was born. I started, um, actually, I went to a conference during this research phase. Yeah. And it was a conference where there were two founders of a national gifting service. Okay. And I won't share which one, but they, <laughs> they were really wonderful. But they were talking about um, the fact that they'd turned over over a meal in a year. Mm -hmm. And it was a really lucrative business. So I thought, okay, maybe this is what we could you know, pair the research together. We've, sure. we've identified the problem. Now we just need a mechanism to get these women into work. Mm -hmm. And so we designed a an ethical gifting company that would become the training ground and employment ground to gently get them back into the workforce. And that's how we grew. Oh, it's such a, <laughs> such a wonderful thing. I mean, it, you know, it sort of reminds me of that um, I'm, go I'm not sure I'm going to remember the, the phrase correctly, yeah, but, you know, give, yeah. give, give a man a fish and you feed That's him for it. a day, give him, give him, um, teach him how to fish and yeah, absolutely. teach more upskill for a lifetime. There's, mm. there's something 
Yeah, absolutely. Something in that. Bronwyn, I'm really interested to understand about the metal framework um, that, that you've developed and you know how it came to improving economic security for, for the safety of women seeking to leave situations of abuse. Yeah, so the METAL framework is the result of collaboration um, and some of the most emotional and inspiring conversations I've ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. So before I went forward with um, giving my idea any legitimacy, I wanted to validate it with survivors. So sure. I didn't want to be uh, just another person that came forward and deemed that I had a solution to mm -hmm. a problem that I'd never personally faced. So I had the first conversation that I had was actually with a really close my mum's best friend okay. um, who had undergone some really kind of awful circumstances that she'd never really shared before mm -hmm. and I asked her if she'd be willing to share and the insight that it gave me into her life and who she was as a person um, on that personal level but then on a practical level what services were missing when she really needed help. Okay. Um, so from that I started, actually I must say first I spoke to a psychologist to just say I'm not a psych, I'm not equipped to sure. give these women the support they need, what questions should I avoid? I'm intending on interviewing a bunch of really mm -hmm. incredible women, what, what's the framework that I should approach this with? And he just said don't go in acknowledging that. Go in and acknowledge okay. I'm not someone who's equipped to give you this, this support, but share what you're willing to share and yeah. then here are a bunch of people I can refer you on, on to afterwards. Okay. Okay. Um, so over from 2018 to 19, I spoke to over 20 women about their lived experiences, um, branched out to members of the LGBTQIA plus community, um, yeah. culturally and linguistically diverse women, um, Indigenous women in Melbourne and Perth as well and just wanted to make sure that the idea that I had was factoring in all of their unique circumstances mm -hmm. and then the business plan that I had in the first place tore it apart um, put in <laughs> <laughs> because again I had created something from someone without lived experience so it completely changed after these interviews and um, yeah tore it apart fed all of that information into it kept iterating the business plan and feeding it back to the people who gave me that input okay. until we had the final framework and the final product that everyone fed back and said yeah that works and that's the metal framework now. <laughs> How interesting and I mean well this sounds like quite a shallow thing to say no. but from a marketer's perspective yeah. that uh, truly seeking to understand yeah. who you are working with and not sure. making a whole lot of assumptions I mean you know from a from a corporate or commercial sense as a marketer that's important but, yeah. but so much more so for, for what you're for what you're talking about and what you were creating. I think it was the only way um, and it and that became so clear mm. after I started seeing I kind of went in and said look here's the here's the starting point sure. I'm not precious about it yeah please rip it to pieces okay okay <laughs> so I think they felt confident that they could without <laughs> me being offended sure. and I'm so glad that I did that because so much changed um, and I think that's why hopefully hopefully why we'll be sustainable because so far yes. um, seeing those um, contributions 
come to life now and having women in our program now who are saying, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that this is a part of the organisation. Okay. Um, and it wouldn't have been unless I'd spoken to those amazing and really courageous people sure. who shared their stories. Sure. So very glad I did it. <laughs> and what, what surprised you the most or what, what were the things that you learned the most through that period, through that experience? I think I, having, coming from a really privileged um, background, mm. I didn't understand the process that uh, that these women and men and children had to go through yeah. when they were seeking support from Centrelink or service providers. It's not as simple as just calling a 1800 number or sure. whatever the mm -hmm. what number on the website is. It's not as simple as just calling and asking for help and then it happens. You really have to prove your case. And I think my biggest... Um, uh, misconception was that you called and there were people that could help okay. and that's not the case there are so many women and children that are turned and men mm -hmm. that are turned away from crisis shelters they're all at capacity and that was something that I didn't understand as well I just thought you know if you're experiencing homelessness yes. naively thought so I thought yeah you call a number and you're connected with a shelter mm -hmm. and you might not be able to stay there for a while but there is there is accommodation, there is a roof over your head. Yeah. And that's so not the case. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, shocking. you say naively, but how would you know if you haven't lived it and yeah. you haven't had those experiences? And, you know, we, we see advertisements that talk to these things. Yeah, and absolutely. Privileged people, I think that's probably a fairly understandable. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> to make. I know, and it's heartbreaking, but I think now that I'm equipped with that knowledge, it's being able to establish partnerships mm -hmm. that um, can make sure when we uh, have these women referred to us that we have the people that can holistically support them now sure. that we've identified yes. all of the services that they need. Sure. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> So, Bronwyn, I know some of the work that you do involves expert help more broadly. So, mm. you know, including financial and psychological support. I'd love, love you to talk me through that in a bit of detail. Yeah. So, as I said, we're such a um, small part of this, this big holistic program. Mm. Um, we've established partnerships with uh, so many service providers that cover the areas that fall outside of my remit. And... Um, from the beginning, I think what attributed to establishing these trusting partners, partnerships was that I went in saying, I am just the employer and the training ground. I'm not going to pretend to be able to offer more than that because, I, again, I don't want to do these women mm -hmm. a disservice. So we have um, a psychologist that comes in to our safe warehouse when the women need them. Okay. Um, we have food insecurity services. So we have baskets that come to that I collect from my local supermarket, mm -hmm. um, and they the women come in and collect them every Friday. We have. Um, all of these top-level kind of immediate crisis support services, but then also beautiful people that have reached out and offered services like yoga classes and boxing classes oh. and ch free childcare services. So there's so many different facets of these women's yeah. life that have just come undone. Um, and I think it was really refreshing coming from a um, communication space and knowing how to navigate Instagram, for example. Sure. Um, the amount of people that reached out and just said, I love what you're doing, I wanna get behind you, I don't have any skills to offer, but mm -hmm. I have a yoga studio, 
you've got free classes if you want them. And it was just so many happy tears receiving all of these oh. messages from <laughs> people who just really wanted to support in any way they could. And they've really flourished into beautiful partnerships that make sure that these women are supported. Mm -hmm. um, one of the key things though is, and I think one of the, um, the services that we offer that I'm most proud of is the peer support um, groups that we can offer. So when I was doing the, the research in leading up to our launch, um, so many of the women said, I am so sick of focus groups that are kind of run like, um, like an Alcoholics Anonymous class where you're like, this is my name, this is what I've been through. Okay. And there's someone that says, okay, well, how does that make you feel? And they said, sometimes I just want to have a glass of wine and sure. talk to someone sure. who knows what I've been through mm -hmm. and not be told this is how you should feel about how you're okay. feeling. Yeah. I just want to vent and uh -huh. have someone who gets it. Sure. So once a month we have these wine or tea. Some of the women don't drink. Okay. So we have wine, <laughs> tea and cheese and um, I just leave them to it. I'm obsessed with their children. They're so cute. So they bring their kids in. I'll go and play with their kids. <laughs> We've got like a little make-do place corner. Okay. I'll go and play with them and the mums will just have an hour or two to just catch up. And we have got a survivor advocate who isn't in our program, but she comes in as a kind of um, unofficial facilitator if the women need that extra mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. But that's one of my favorite parts, just seeing them all connect. And they might not even talk about the DV. Sure. They might just say, you know, oh, I went to this really great place for dinner the other night just to have someone to talk yeah. to yeah. because they're so isolated. They don't have friends because they've been isolated from their friends deliberately by their perpetrator or yes. because they've had to flee to a different suburb where the shelter was. Sure. Um, so to see them having that connectivity is so, so special. There are so many components to that, Bronwyn, that I that I find really interesting. I mean, mm. you know, in uh, the cushy first world that yeah. many of us exist in, you know, we talk about looking after mental health and, mm -hmm. and uh, well, and physical health and, yeah. you know, yoga and some yes. good exercise comes in there. Mm. Um, but also the deep practicality of mm. childcare. I mean, if, I, yeah. you know, uh, as if you are a woman who has escaped such a situation with, mm. with kids. I yeah. mean, the reality is going to be mm. almost certainly that if you don't have childcare, how, yeah. how can you work? How can you exactly. start to get back on your feet? Yeah, so exactly. That's... It's really challenging. And um, I think as well, even discounted or subsidized childcare, you're sure. still looking at $100 a day. Yes. It's insane. Yes, and it is. these women are earning $100 a day. That's their mm -hmm. earnings. Yeah. It's just so, it's heartbreaking that they have to prioritize, um, yeah, good quality childcare sure. over, yeah, it, it's really, really sad to see the struggles that they face. Um, one of the partnerships actually that I should have spoken to is our, is the final piece of the puzzle and that's our recruitment provider partners. Okay. So when the women finish with our program, we offer them a minimum of six months paid work with us. Um, but when they get to the end of that six months, we help them to find employment that's perfectly suited to their unique circumstances sure. um, with an employer that understands what they've been through and has the right security measures mm -hmm. in place to look after them adequately. Okay. Um, we've just partnered with a really great recruitment provider who's also a nonprofit called Edge Employment. and. This is one of those tricky Centrelink things that if you 
didn't know, there's no way you'd know if you weren't in the yes. space working that yeah. closely. Um, so if you were to call Centrelink tomorrow and say, look, I'm living in a refuge, what are my next steps? I need some kind of um, human services support. What payments can I apply for? Sure. If you were to tell them that it was because of domestic violence and you were wanting any kind of support, employment support, you have to go to the doctors, you have to get a doctor's certificate to say that you are suffering from some kind of a mental illness, either PTSD, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, mm -hmm. as a result of the domestic violence or family violence. Mm -hmm. And only then are you eligible to apply for um, any employment services that fall under the disability employment scheme. So that word disability is a big deterrent for a lot of the women because they hear it and they say, oh, okay, I'm not eligible for that. Sure. They are because you can be, it can be anything from arthritis to depression. Mm -hmm. um, but because it's that word is, you know, a lot of people view it as an umbrella term yes. that they don't identify as. They don't think that there's services available for them, so they give up. So EDGE is there to help them okay. um, secure these services, help them take those steps and give them templates to take to the doctor to explain. Because even the doctor is a barrier. You know, they'll go sure. to the doctor and say, I need you to write me a letter so that I can go and apply for the disability employment scheme. Mm -hmm. And the doctor will say, well, you're not disabled. I'm not, it's, doctors don't know. There's a communication barrier. So it's the, so many hurdles that they have to jump over. Um, and EDGE is a really helpful partner for us to, to connect that, those final pieces. Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. and just, just that all of that navigating um, it's stuff that I, I thought that I had done the most comprehensive amount of research mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I met this beautiful angel of a woman who is a Centrelink representative about three months into actually starting metal that I said, I feel like I'm not supporting them as, as well as I can be. Um, and she said, oh, I'll connect you with this woman. She might be able to con connect you with Edge. And if mm -hmm. it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have even known that these services were available for okay. them. So you really have to do some digging to find sure. what's on offer. We're just lucky that we found the right people. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine if, if you're a escaping a domestic violence situation, you're probably mm. not necessarily going to be in the best frame of mind to be persistent and yeah. dogmatic and follow up and exactly. even know what are the right questions to ask I to know. navigate all of that process. Yeah, I know. Oh. <laughs> it's crazy to think about. Oh, some good work you're doing, Bronwyn. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bronwyn, I'm interested to understand exactly what a social enterprise is. It's a term that, you know, we see perhaps bandied around a little bit, but what exactly does it mean? Yeah, so I think sometimes it can get a bit of a bad rap. Um, that's because in Australia at the moment, it's not actually legislated, so you don't have to, there's nobody that you register through to become a social enterprise. Okay. Um, and because of that, people might say, um, call themselves a social enterprise because they donate a portion of their income to a charity, which is wonderful and sure. should be done. Um, but the, the unofficial term for it is that at least 50% of your profits is going towards a social cause. Okay. And 
because we um, are a registered charity, we operate as a registered charity, so there's no profit in our operations. Mm -hmm. We're a non-profit. Yes. Every cent of our revenue that comes from the gifting service goes directly to the social enterprise, which is paying the women, paying their super, paying for all these additional services as well. And then, of course, the overheads like our rent and product and all of those sure. fun things mm -hmm. that come with any commercial business. Um, but the way that we use our social enterprise is that, again, when we did the research, we'd identified this problem that was the lack of um, opportunities to establish financial independence. So we knew that, that we needed to create some kind of mechanism to yes. get these women back into work okay. that wasn't merely the facilitator. We wanted to act as that actual employment and training ground as well. Mm -hmm. So our social enterprise is that the women come and work with us for six months. Um, they go through a bunch of modules that we create for them at, when they arrive, dependent on what their experience is, dependent on if they even want to um, expand their skill set. A lot of them actually just want to come in, zone out, turn off the chaos that's happening uh -huh. outside of our warehouse sure. and just get their work done and then go home. And mm -hmm. that's completely fine as well. Yeah. It's, it's whatever they want to make of their time. Mm -hmm. Um, so our revenue from the sales, every box that we sell um, is one hour of employment for a woman in our program. Okay. We also have corporate partnerships as well. So we have corporate clients who might use our gifts um, for customer gift, for client gifts. Mm -hmm. um, so as of December last year, when we closed our books, we had sold enough that we had over 1,200 hours of work for the women in our program, which is so, so amazing. We could never have dreamed of that um, <laughs> in the three months of being open. Sure. Um, and then because we are a registered charity as well, we do also have funders who um, are kind of that buffer for us so that okay. we know safely that if we have a bad week, if we mm -hmm. only sell 100 boxes in a week, that we can still comfortably pay the women and they're never in a situation where they don't have an income sure. so that's how we operate and yeah I think uh, not to say that those that operate with the 50 cent model 50 percent model aren't absolutely killing it they're amazing and mm -hmm. we need to see more um, business for good um, but for us we've chosen that it's a hundred percent and that's why we registered as a charity sure thank you that's really interesting and yeah. um so inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, Bronwyn, the research that you did uh, to design the METAL framework identified quite a common issue that victim survivors faced, which I understand is called the couple rule. Mm. Um, I'd love it if you could talk me through that and some of the recommendations to deal with that. Yeah. I thought the best way um, to speak to the couple rule would be to share a story actually of one of the women that I interviewed in the process um, of setting up metal and that was the sure. first time that I ran into the couple rule. I had mm -hmm. never heard of it before this. So um, I'll call her Jess. Her name's not but just sure. for safety reasons. <laughs> so um, Jess was in uh, with her husband for 15 years and had two young children. She had to flee the relationship. Um, and the first time that she tried, he had threatened the life of herself and her kids. She ended up going to a women's shelter and um, was there for a little while. And after three months, she had this complex because she was actually from quite an affluent um, background. Okay. He was a lawyer. So no one in her community really believed what was happening. She didn't want to come forward. She didn't want to shame their mm -hmm. family. There mm -hmm. was 
a bunch of complexities involved. And she said to me that when she was at the shelter, she felt like she didn't deserve to be there because she felt like she was in a much more privileged position than a lot of the other women who were there from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Sure. Um, when the shelter organised for Centrelink to come and meet with her to see if she was eligible for a crisis payment or mm -hmm. any ongoing payments, um, they found that she wasn't eligible because of the couple rule, which meant that she was quite she was tied to her husband's income, and as a quite well-respected lawyer, it was quite significant. Sure. So there was literally no way around that. The Centrelink representative really wasn't warm or wasn't um, supportive of what she was going through. There is something that exists called um, the special reason. So a Centrelink representative has the discretion to say, look, these are special circumstances. Okay. Even though your, um, your income is tied to your partners at the moment, we're going to waiver that. We're going to give you a crisis payment. But yes. this, wasn't, um, this wasn't the case for Jess. So... Jess um, ended up leaving the shelter. She thought that the only way that she was going to be able to put a roof over her head, the roof of her children, yes. was to go back to her abuser and she thought that she could change him. She thought that she could just, you know, weather the storm and that things mm -hmm. would be okay. Um, they weren't and she ended up being abused so severely that she was in hospital with a broken rib. Um, and not long after, she was nursing her broken rib, mm -hmm. ended up thinking, I need to secure a job because a job is the only thing that's going to enable me to have enough money in the bank mm -hmm. to then safely leave. And imagine just being in that situation where you're in an interview and the, this interview is the only thing that's going to be able to enable you to leave um, and ensure your safety. And I think she thought that, um, she said, because her kids weren't being impacted by this. It was all very secretive. It mm -hmm. was all very strategic where the abuse was occurring okay. so it wasn't visible to the public. Um, yeah, the, she thought, well, if the kids are okay, I'm, I'm going to just take this until I'm safe enough to leave. She eventually did get a job. She eventually had a family member who found out what was happening um, and just said, I'm going to help you through this. She didn't have to go back to the shelter again, but she had a family member who helped her safely leave. Her story has ended quite beautifully and she's safe and her children are mm -hmm. safe. Um, the perpetrator was never charged. She never brought cha charges against the perpetrator because she just didn't, he was a lawyer. She thought she had no chance. But that's a real life example of how the couple rule comes into play. Um, the good news, I'm trying to view the, be yes. <laughs> optimistic here. Yes. The good news is um, last year, Anne Rose, who are an incredible peak body um, to bring research and awareness to what's happening in the DV family mm -hmm. violence space. Um, they published a report about the couple rule and really dove deep into what it means and the impact that it has for survivors of domestic violence. They put through recommendations and one of them was that um, the legislation that um, puts this couple rule in place. Yes. Um, the, which is, I don't want to get it wrong, the Social Security Act 1991. I always get the year wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the Social Security Act 1991. And that just shows you how long that legislation has been in place. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been a big push by Anne Rose and everyone who's caught wind of that, um, of that report as well to try and amend the Social Security Act so that 
the Centrelink representatives have the discretion to say, okay, domestic violence is at play, we can make, we can have some leniency sure. here. Unfortunately, since July, I've been keeping quite a close eye on this and I haven't seen any, um, any indication that there's been a change yet or any, um, any push or any uptake by Centrelink okay. for this change or the Department of Human Services for change. Um, but I'm hopeful that there is a lot of noise around this because there's a lot of outrage that this is something that a survivor has to face. So I am an eternal optimist. I think I have to be. So I, I think, think in your role you have to be. <laughs> you have to be. So I think something will come. Anne Rose creates so much change through the research that they do. Yes. So if 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 the community is going to take someone seriously, it's Anne Rose. So okay. I'm I'm confident that it's in the right hands for change to happen. Hopefully. <laughs> I hope so. Well, and, yeah. and the you know Jess's story that that you yeah. shared. I mean that that surely is is far from a typical scenario where mm. where there is a family member who is able to to support exactly. somebody exactly yeah exactly i know and it's heartbreaking that regardless of the trauma that she went through she's considered a lucky one it's like hang yeah. on <laughs> how yeah. is that considered lucky but she is just along with the other women that i spoke to their courage is just exemplary I just cannot understand how people have such perseverance and drive sure. um, she's just one of those women so one of many mm. <laughs> you must meet some pretty incredible people Bronwyn. yeah very privileged <laughs> mm. Bronwyn through this I hate the word journey but through this no, journey <laughs> what what would you say your biggest learnings have been I've had a few um, I think on a, I'm quite a mushy emotional person <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, studying journalism and working in the courts and then going to kind of corporate roles after that, yeah. there was always a stigma attached to letting emotion come into work. Mm -hmm. You know, it was desensitise, make sure you keep um, emotion and work separate. Yes. I've completely thrown that notion in the bin since starting Metal and mm -hmm. I think it's it's been so helpful and why we exist because it's hearing stories like Jess, it's working with the women every day that, um, yeah, I get emotional all the time. I cry all the time because their stories are so powerful that you can't not cry yes. or, or feel it. Yeah. But turning that emotion and turning that anger that the system I guess yes. isn't supporting them in a way that it should be mm -hmm. that's my fuel yes. and I think if I was to put my desensitizing training in place we'd have such a lackluster product and yeah. a product yeah. that wouldn't support them in the way that they need to be supported mm -hmm. so I think yeah my biggest learning is to embrace the emotion and to use it to drive you to keep pushing for change because yes. um yeah you need it. You absolutely need it. It's oh. not to say that you don't need self-care practices in place to sure. make sure that you're not, you know, living, taking on board too much yes. and, um, you know, being too deflated by the, when you notice there's gaps in the system. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, using it to try and cre create a remedy rather than just dwelling in the moment. That's what I've turned it into or what I'm trying to I, turn it into. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've done a really good job on that front. I mean, we, you know, we read a lot about Gen Y, mm. uh, millennials wanting to see that the organisations that they work for mm. 
aren't just there for the creation of um, dollars, but yeah. that they're doing they're doing some good for the communities in yeah. which they operate. But yeah. I th and I think that's a really really positive development. But but I think um, I think what you do takes that a Oh. Phenomenal <laughs> 35,000 steps oh. beyond beyond many organisations. Thank you so much. No, I think it's you're right. It's really beautiful to see that um, people are wanting to use business for mm. purpose. It's really, really heartwarming to see all of the change that is coming from that push. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brahman, we, fear, we, we hear fairly often that abuse happens across all socioeconomic demographics and you know mm. you talked to that with um with jess's story what else would you like people to know about that mm. i actually um asked one of the women who's currently in our program if i could just share a little quote from her because i think it just captures it so perfectly mm -hmm. i think there's um, a real misconception about what homelessness looks like and we're trying to use our platform to make sure people when people hear the word homelessness that they don't switch off um, I think when you th when you hear a word that seems out of your control or a problem that is too big for you to deal with on an individual level it is human nature to kind of switch off and turn away mm. so this is a quote from a woman in a program again, I can't share her name, sure. but she says, for the past nine months, I've been able to leave the refuge without fear of my life. I am not lazy. I've had to choose the life of my son and myself over finding work. And I just think it summarizes it so well. Mm. She's, yeah, she's the most incredibly driven woman. Her work ethic is amazing. She was our first ever program participant and um, we could not have dreamed for a more fantastic employee. Even, you know, if I had just put a job on Seek and we weren't a social enterprise sure. and she had come along, mm -hmm. we would just be pitching ourselves. She's so amazing. So I think to just try and break the stigma that's attached to people who are experiencing homelessness, it's at no fault of their own. So I want people to remember that if they can. Bronwyn, this has been a really wonderful uh, conversation. I've really, well, enjoyed <laughs> it, found it to be a bit harrowing in some ways, yeah. but, but also incredibly uplifting. If people would like to read some more about the work that you're doing, they can see you in April's edition of the Australian Murray Claire magazine, which yeah. is pretty pretty good coverage for you too. Pretty exciting. Yes. I'm so nervous to see the pictures, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great exposure and it's such a great magazine who's really starting to um, support women, who, who's yeah. always supported women, but I think they're really driving that recently. So feeling very privileged to be involved and, and to be on podcasts like this. Oh. It's, it's so exciting. Well, it's it's been such a great conversation. Bromman, thank you. Where where can people find you if they want to see some more? Yeah, so our website is metal m e t l e gifts dot com, and um, Instagram is metal underscore org. Lots of information on there. Fantastic, Bromman. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks so much for listening to the Katie Talks podcast with me, Katie Bennett Stenton. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who would love it. And please review on iTunes so that other people can help find this great content. And if anybody's looking for some awesome gifts out there, you really should check out Metal's website. I've got some great thought leaders coming up in the series. Subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. 
You can find me at Katie B Marketing on Twitter or Katie Bennett Stanton on LinkedIn. <laughs>